Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, November 20th, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. In today's text, St. Paul teaches the Corinthian Christians to regard him and other Christian preachers as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's always a joy and a privilege to be with you. Well, Pastor Linnell, we get to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 4 today. Give us some context on the epistle and what Paul's been saying so far to help us with chapter 4. So Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is... Uh, a letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And as Paul has been uh, traveling around, he's he's been founding, the Holy Spirit has been founding and starting churches through him. He goes into a town and usually preaches in the synagogue and talks about Jesus and gathers, the Holy Spirit gathers uh, usually a community unto, unto that gospel message. And then that Christian community grows and is founded and established. And then after Paul spends some time with them, he moves on often enough to another place. And so Corinth is, uh, it's a city in Greece. It's a, uh, it's a port city. It's, it's very important. And it has uh, a lot of, um, a lot of influence and connection to other cities and places around the region. It's also, it's also got a lot of, a lot of temples and, uh, a lot of places of worship to false gods and other sorts of things. And so Paul in Acts 18, you can read the story, but Paul Paul goes there to Corinth and and he's he's proclaiming the gospel and uh, he's proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and and the Holy Spirit works through Paul to establish this this community of Christians and followers of Jesus, this church. And things seem to be going well. He spends some time with them, maybe about a year or so, and then he's moving on to other places and and other things. And well, he gets word that there are some things going on in Corinth that are not so great. You see, the Corinthians have fallen into a number of uh, unchristian practices and unchristian ways. And so Paul is writing this letter to Corinth to address to address some of those things. And so the letter, his letter, 1 Corinthians, is broken down really into, into five sections. And it's like five sort of mini essays, really, where he addresses each one of those, those errors, those, those places where they have fallen into either false or pagan teaching. And he shows the Corinthians and, and all of us really how each one of those places where they are they are not living as Christians is related to Jesus, to what Jesus has done. He has come and, and his death and his resurrection and how their 
their practices, their unchristian practices, are really, um, really showing a, a separation from the faith that they confess to believe. And so there's a, there's a number of, of different things. Some are uh, denying the resurrection. Some are falling into some sexual immorality. And there's, there's a number of things. But in this first section, in chapters 1 through 4, there are divisions amongst the church. And these divisions have come because Paul is not the only evangelist or apostle to have visited the Corinthians. And so um, there's Paul and there's Apollos and there's Peter that have come. And the, and the Corinthians have kind of decided they're going to play favorites. Some people like Peter more, some people like Apollos more, some people like Paul more, and they have formed these factions right like almost like football teams and and they they have started not just playing favorites but denigrating the other group denigrating the other apostles the other people and so they're not they're not working in harmony but they have these these distinction or these these distinct groups now we we might say something like that looks that looks like Christian denominations today, hmm. but I don't think that's really an accurate comparison. We have different Christian denominations because those Christian denominations actually teach different things. But these divisions weren't because different things were being taught, right? Apollos, Paul, Peter, they were all teaching the same thing. They were all teaching the same gospel. It's just that some people liked Peter more than they liked Paul. And some people liked Apollos more than they liked Peter or more than they liked Paul. And so really it would be more along the lines of if you were in a congregation and that congregation had more than one pastor. And both of those pastors are teaching faithfully. But some people in the congregation just really like one pastor and they don't like the other. And so anytime the one pastor that they like does something, they're all behind it. And they're very enthusiastic. But anytime the other pastor says something, they, they really give him a hard time. And then other people who like that pastor rally around him. And then they start talking bad against the pastor that the first group likes. And now all of a sudden you have factions in the congregation. And this isn't even because the two pastors have any problem with each other. It's just because maybe they do things a little differently. And they have different strengths. And so the congregation rallies around the person that they like. Or maybe there's a, there's a perceived sort of conflict, like between Paul and Peter. And then so even though those two people have worked things out and they're on the same page, they're teaching the same gospel, different factions within the congregation have, have rallied around them. That's really what's going on here. And it's become so toxic that it's really getting in the way of the gospel we, we, we're rejecting things, not because they're wrong, but because the other person said it. It's just a, it's just a terrible thing. It's tearing the congregation apart. Mm -hmm. And so in these first four chapters, and we're doing chapter four, so it's kind of the climax of this, this discussion, Paul is addressing those divisions, and he has been addressing what it means to have these different apostles come, these different evangelists come, and who and what they're supposed to be. Here in chapter 4, 
he he has talked about why they're not different and he has set up all the groundwork and so here he's giving them a final explanation of what it means to be an apostle and where they have failed in comparison an admonishment and encouragement for them to imitate the very people that they rally around because they're not doing that. Well, with that introduction, let's take a look at the text. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I send you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? That's our text for today. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. Pastor Linnell, help us into that those first couple of verses where Paul says, this is how we should be regarded. He says we should be servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. He talks more about what that means in terms of his stewardship and who judges him. Help us into these opening thoughts from Paul in this chapter. So one of the things that we want to remember is, is that Paul here is, is not describing all Christians everywhere. He's describing the apostles, the evangelists. And I don't think that it's inappropriate really to think of this even in terms of of your pastor today. And so when he says this is how one should regard us, you know, for for the sake of simplicity, we're, we're, we're kind of talking about the clergy at this point. And so he says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So servants of Christ, first of all, right, slaves of Christ. And so um, they're not meant to be rock stars. 
they're they're not meant to be uh, kings or rulers. They're not meant to be elevated. They're they're servants. They're humble. They're they're slaves even. They're representatives. They are not meant to be the people after whom you follow. And this in the in the early Christian church is uh, I think a, a stark departure from the Jewish tradition of rabbis. Because what you would end up with is you would you would have these rabbis and the, the rabbis would uh, gain significant notoriety, um, you know, fame according to their teaching and prestige. And then you would apply really to be their disciple and to follow them. And um, in a certain sense, you, you might even compare that to sort of um, professors in academia. And so in, in various you know, theology or, or, you know, philosophy schools or something like that, you, you might actually choose your program on the basis of who the professors are. And then those professors are periodically given sabbaticals so that they can continue to write. And, you know, and they, they are supposed to draw students in because of their, their, you know, their, their visibility and their fame. And, and then you become a disciple of that particular rabbi. You follow that rabbi's school of thought. And then the idea is, is that at some point you even try to surpass him and take some fame and notoriety of yourself and some influence. And Paul's saying, that's not how we're operating here. We're, we are not trying to do this for ourselves. We're, we are servants of Christ. And everything that we do is supposed to direct attention to him. We're not supposed to be building up followings for ourselves. That's not what we're doing. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. When he says stewards of the mysteries of God, um, he's talking about two things because they're not unrelated. They're not really different things. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, because even though we wouldn't necessarily think of it as a mystery. Knowledge of the gospel and, and faith in, in Jesus Christ, what God has done through him, his promise of salvation, is not knowledge of God that you can have without it being revealed to you. We'll often break knowledge of God down into two categories, natural knowledge of God and revealed knowledge of God. And the Bible says that, that really everybody should know that there is a God of some kind. The fool in his heart says there is no God. You should be able to see that there is a God simply by looking at creation and the order thereof. However, that doesn't really tell you anything about what God is like. Yeah. And so even though everybody should know that there is a God, what you think about God might be very different than somebody else, depending on your circumstances. Because if you're hanging out in the Bahamas, and you're drinking out of coconuts and hanging out on the beach, God is great, and he's created a paradise for you. But if you live in Wisconsin in the winter, and all you have is cheese to eat, you you might think something <laughs> different. Right? I like cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Wisconsin is wonderful. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. But let's, so let's do it this way. But if you are sitting on that same island beach in the Bahamas, and a hurricane comes through, yeah. well, God must be angry with you, right? Well, no, not necessarily. But how do you know? Revealed knowledge of God is knowledge of what God is like. 
And this is knowledge that only comes to us through the Bible. The Son, Jesus Christ, reveals to us the Father. No one has seen the Father except the Son, right? And so the mysteries of God in its in its very sort of initial and direct and perhaps primary understanding is going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, lived a perfect life on our behalf, died for our sins and rose again, who ascended and promises to return. Now there's something else that is also meant when we say the mysteries of God. And in this, we are talking about those tangible ways in which the grace of God comes to us and the gospel is pledged and delivered, the means of grace, which would be the sacraments. And so talking about baptism, talking about the Lord's Supper specifically for us. And when he says this, when he says mysteries, um, understand that the word sacrament is not in the Bible. But that doesn't mean that we made it up. Not exactly anyway, because that word sacrament and the word mystery here, they, they are related. And in fact, churches in the East, the Orthodox, they prefer the term mysteries rather than sacraments. And so the term sacrament really fell into um, popular use uh, several hundred years after the Bible was, was written with, um, with Augustine and with... Um, I think um, Tertullian and Irenaeus, and part of the part of the objection that they had to the use of the word mysteries is that the pagans would off would also often use the word mystery to refer to their rites and rituals. Mm. And during this time of persecution, when you have these these early apologists that are trying to um, defend Christianity in a in a um, in an intelligent way to those who would, would write polemics against Christianity, they, they abandoned sort of this term because it made, them, it made them sound a little bit more like a cult or a, you know, a pagan sort of thing as opposed to this, this established um, religion and, and its relation to, to Judaism, but at the same time, its distinction. And so they, they use this term sacrament and it was chosen a little bit deliberately um, because sacrament was also the word that was used when you made somebody a centurion. And so it had a Roman connotation that, that they could understand. And it had to do with the sacrament being a sacred act, but it was also a, a pledge of oath and fealty. And so when we talk about the, the sacraments in terms of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, then uh, Augustine, later in the 5th century, would define a sacrament as, uh, as an, an outward sign of an inward grace. Now, if you're listening at home and you hear that, an outward sign of an inward grace, um, that, that should sound familiar to you, that, that sort of phrase, because there's, there's sort of a, a modified version that is often used, a modified version of that phrase that's often used by people who deny that the sacraments are actually God's doing of anything. Oddly enough, they're called sacramentarians, right? And the idea for them is that they would say, well, baptism isn't, isn't actually a means of grace. It's an outward showing of an inward decision. But 
can you, can you see the subtle difference in how that phrase was changed? An outward showing of an inward grace is not the same thing as an outward showing of an inward decision. The difference is an outward showing of an inward grace still makes it about what God is doing, but it's the outward sign of the invisible work of God. And an outward showing of an inward decision is the visible sign of your own work. Those are very different, even though somebody kind of stole Augustine's turn of phrase. So in here, what then is, or what should we consider, Paul and Apollos and Peter, and how should we regard maybe the clergy and our pastors? Well, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, not people to be worshipped and, and celebrated, not people to be elevated, but humble servants that represent our Lord. And how do we represent our Lord? By, by being stewards, by being managers of the mysteries of God. That's the gospel the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and the means of grace with which he has sent us. Hmm. So word and sacrament ministry. And that's, that's all right there kind of in, in verse one, but I think, I think it's a very concise and a, a very consistent way of describing what we believe happens through the office of the keys and the office of, of public ministry with, with our pastors. So with that description then of this office in verses 1 and 2, Paul then begins to speak about the matter of, of being judged and who judges him and, and what that entails. We've got about five minutes here before the break, Pastor Linnell. Help us into what Paul says about judgment in the following verses. So there's two things here, because this, you know, we I think we have um, a, a wide range of people that are pastors and their practice and the, the way that they interact with, you know, people in the parish. And Likewise, a wide range of how the people in the parish, you know, our, um, our people might interact with and think about the clergy. And so Paul says that there's, there's really two things here. And the first is, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So that's really the primary concern when we're evaluating whether, whether a pastor is, is, we'll say, good or not, is whether he is faithful, whether he is trustworthy of the of the mysteries of the the gospel and of the the means of grace that is his primary concern but he says with me it's a very small thing i should be judged by you or by any human court and in fact i don't even judge myself i'm not aware of anything against myself so he's not concerned about what anybody else thinks of him now this is understood to exclude whether or not a person is faithful because he cares a whole lot if you start accusing him of being unfaithful or preaching a different gospel or something like he's he would really not be okay with that but what he's saying is is he doesn't care if you were to judge him the way that humans judge one another so whether you're judging him for you know being poor because paul paul was often homeless he was often very poor he he didn't have a lot of financial backing he was a tent maker and so he kind of earned his own living um, and and he doesn't care whether you whether you are judging him because he doesn't have a lot of money and so you don't think that God likes him because he's poor. He doesn't care what you think in that regard. He doesn't care whether you think that he's attractive. He doesn't care whether or not you think that he's a good public speaker. 
he is not opened or concerned to being judged in those human ways. And indeed, he doesn't even judge himself in those regard, in that regard. And, you know, judgment, we would also, we would often think as a negative thing, but judgment can be for or against. You could judge somebody and find them to be a magnificent public speaker, and Paul still wouldn't care. And so Paul doesn't even do this then to himself. He says he's not aware of anything against himself, but he is not thereby acquitted. So Paul is in this very subtle kind of way saying, you know, i I don't think that I have any terrible deficiencies, but that really doesn't matter either because there's only one opinion that matters of me, and that's that's the Lord's. And so that's how he continues. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And so Paul is again saying, you know, don't don't judge according to the the ways that are on the outside. And oftentimes enough, the way that you judge somebody by their outside appearances will affect the way that you think of the things that they're actually saying and the intentions of their heart. Oh, well, this person's boring and he's not a good public speaker and maybe he's got some personality quirks. And so when he brings the gospel, I don't hear it the same way. And I might even be more apt to judge against him, even if he says something faithful, because somebody else is more attractive and they they speak better. And Paul says, don't do any of that. Don't pronounce that sort of judgment before the Lord comes. And the Lord is going to reveal all of those things that are now hidden. And he says hidden in darkness. And this is really talking about our sin, right? This, this veil that covers all things, because even though the light of Christ has been revealed to us, there's still sort of a darkness with inside each of us, this old sinful nature that keeps trying to obscure that. And so in a certain sense, it's a bit of a battle that way. But, you know, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. And so he says that when the Lord comes, you'll be able to see clearly, not based on outward appearances, but all of those different apostles and different people that have come to you with the gospel that perhaps you've judged because of their their earthly manners. You'll be able to see clearly the, the beauty and the faithfulness of the gospel that they bring when the Lord comes. And then each one will receive their commendation, not from you. It's not at the end of times you'll be able to see those things and then you'll give them credit and they'll be happy. But the Lord will be the one that says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my father's rest. And that is the reward that we're looking for, not the not the commendation of, of human beings for earthly things. Yeah, so what a day that will be when the Lord does return and he gives his commendation to his faithful people covered in the blood of Christ. We're going to pick up the text there again on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sean Linnell this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. 
LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's Monday, November 20th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. And Pastor Sean Linnell, he serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we had gone through verse 5. In verse 6, Paul says that he has applied all these things to himself and to Apollos for the benefit of the Corinthians. We see both Paul and Apollos come up. They were the ones that were especially in view in chapter 3 as well. Uh, what's Paul saying next as he moves into verses 6 and 7? So when we started this chapter, one of the things we said is that Paul wasn't talking about everybody. He was really talking about uh, clergy for the sake of our conversation this morning. And the as we move into the rest of the chapter, he is now talking about us and what the Lord expects from us and 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 how we should behave and how we should look. So chapter four is not a discussion about, oh, the clergy, it really is a discussion about us, but he starts off with himself and with Apollos and with Peter, and he says, this is how the Lord has sent us. And we are supposed to represent Jesus to you. We're supposed to show Jesus to you, not only in the things that we say, but also in our manner, in the things that we're concerned about, in the way that we live. And that, because we are disciples of Jesus, and so we're supposed to be as the Holy Spirit lives in us, conformed to look more Christ-like. And that doesn't mean we're ever going to be without sin, we're ever going to be perfect, but our, our life is spent imitating Christ. And if we are imitating Christ, if Paul and Apollos and Peter are imitators of Christ, then as they come to you, bringing the gospel, but also, also living out that faith in um, maybe not a perfect way, but certainly in a very visible way, then, then we now also have something to imitate. And so, um, so pastors, of course, aren't just supposed to be faithful in preaching the gospel, but also faithful in living that gospel out and in, in loving that grace and um, in, uh, you know, proclaiming and applying sort of law and gospel in a, in a, a relationship in a in a pastoral way in a christ-like way that we might imitate them and, and again maybe not you know all of their personality quirks because pastors can be a bit weird sometimes but certainly in the way that 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 the bible and that hopefully our lives present christ mm. so this is what he says right i've applied all these things to myself and apollos but he's done that for your benefit so that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written so, right, it's not about what I say, it's about the text, and it's about what God has commanded, and the ways that we are to live are the ways that God has shown us in the Bible, right? It's not about us as rabbis, you know, creating fences and hedges around commandments and then, you know, adding a whole bunch of things that the Bible didn't say to try to puff ourselves up. And this is then what he says, so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, oh, well, you know, Paulus taught us this, and Peter taught us that, and Paul taught us this, and we're better because we're following this extra thing that the rabbi did. No, it's all about Christ crucified. Yeah. 
And it's all about what the Bible shows us. And so he says, be puffed up against one another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so what he's saying is, if you have anything to be proud of, if you have anything that you want other people to see, if you have anything that you think brings glory to God, where did that come from? You didn't make it up. You didn't make up the, the, either the, the rules or you didn't make up the, the things that the Lord told you that were good, right? The, the Lord is the one who told you what was good. And not only did he tell you what was good, he's the one that enabled you to do it. He's the one that forgave your sins. He's the one that, that gave you the means of grace. He's the one that called you to be his own and made you his child and then sent you out with love in your heart. So do you think it's any different for Peter or for Paul or Apollos? What exactly is it that you think we're bringing that doesn't come from the Lord? And so for all of you, if everything that you have that is good, that you are being puffed up about, comes from the Lord, then what are you so puffed up about? Did you make it from yourself, or did you receive it from the Lord? And so that's, that's what he's saying, right? You guys, before we came to you, were pagans lost in your sin, and you are not now children of God because we brought to you something from Peter or Apollos or from Paul. You now are children of God because we brought something to you from the Lord. So maybe you should be followers of Jesus and not followers of Paul or followers of Peter or followers of Apollos. And by the way, um, even though Paul really does love them, He's uh, he's about to mock them mercilessly. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it does seem like as you read, starting in verses eight and following, that he becomes sarcastic or satirical, as you said. He he begins to mock them. So what's he what's he up to when he when he starts there that new paragraph in verse eight? Right, and it's sort of a weird thing because as you're as you're reading through, you kind of say, you know, there's no inflection, there's no you know nobody is sort of doing the performative reading. And so when you're reading through, you're kind of like, oh, well, they, they sound, he sounds like he's being very amicable. He's really building them up, right? Because sometimes you do that. Somebody will come in and there's something that they, they bring that is maybe not so great. And instead of just addressing it head on, you find something to compliment, something to build them up a little bit so that they don't you know, feel like you're just, you're just you know, tearing them apart. And then you say, hey, this is really good or this is a really good intention, but it sort of turned out this way. And is there a way that we could do it better? Paul does not do that at all. Paul is not nice. And so he says, um, because they're, they're boasting in all of these things, right? They're, they're boasting in their, their wealth and their affluence, um, which, by the way, is going to be another sort of thing that comes up in Paul's book. Uh, well, I would say second letter to the Corinthians, but at least the next one that we have, because one of the things that Paul is going, like the entirety of that letter is him talking about sort of his relationship with them and these kind of super apostles that come in and take money from them and, and present themselves as really flashy and everything else. And Paul's like, that's not good. That's not the way, but they're already showing sort of seeds of, of this as things that they like this affluence and this, you know, um, praising things that in a worldly sense would be admirable. So he says, well, you already have all that you want. Remember, Corinth is a pretty wealthy town. They're a port city. They got lots yeah. of things going on. You're already, you already have all you want. You've already become rich, right? 
I mean, without us, you've become kings, right? Remember, this is a merchant port. They're, they're all pretty affluent and wealthy. He says, and would that you did so that we might share the rule with you, right? Because all of us are poor. We'd love to have your money. That's great. No, man, I think that God is a, has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to men in danger. And so what he's doing is he's drawing a contrast to the way that the apostles are. The very people, by the way, that they proclaim to follow and to love and to have rally around, even uh, in divisions. And he says, but you're nothing like us, are you? Hmm. And so he says, we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for the sake of Christ, but you, you are wise in Christ. You're wise. We, we are weak, but you're strong, right? You are held in honor, but we're in disrepute. And he says this because all of the apostles, Apollo and Peter, Paul, you know, all of them have, have suffered in their travels. And he's doing a callback to things that he has already written about in the first, second, and third chapters. So back in chapter 1, right, he says, uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, right? And then so he comes back here and he's he's talking to them and he's like, oh, well, you guys are you guys are rich. You're basically kings, and you're so wise. You're so wise. You're held in honor. Oh my goodness, isn't that great? You know, we're hungry and thirsty, and we're poorly dressed. We're buffeted, and we're homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. And when we're vilely blessed, and when we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. And we have become, and we are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And you're nothing like us. After all that we've taught you and all that we've brought you and all that we've shown you of Jesus, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And what about you? So maybe you could take a step back and realize that in the causing of these divisions and the following of each of us, you have become like none of us. And then he pulls it back a little bit. He says, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed. I'm not actually trying to mock you. But I am trying to admonish you. You must see this. Because you're, you're children who are beloved. And this is, this is the only way I know to get through to you. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it, sometimes, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just say it, it, it is it's wonderful to see Paul use both those tones right next to each other to, to grab their attention, to, to communicate with them, and, and ultimately to show them this great love that he has for them as a father would have love for his children, which is, is where he, he goes. So keep, keep going, Pastor Leno. Right. And this is, this is really important. You know, I think sometimes we, as, as Lutherans or as Protestants, we don't, we don't like the language of, you know, calling clergy father. And I'm not advocating for that. But the the relationship aspect of that, I think, is is a um, is a right and sort of proper one. You know, the the Lord from eternity is Father and Son, and we don't call Him Father and Son because He's like earthly fathers and sons. It's the other way around. He is Father and Son, and that relationship is the paradigm for all other relationships. This parent 
and child relationship. And then as he as he makes uh, human beings, the way that he forms society from the very beginning is a husband and wife, as a family, tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And so they're supposed to have children. And then this this relationship as parent and child is the way that society then then is supposed to continue and the way that we should think about one another is in these these familial terms. And so as we come into the church, it really shouldn't be any different. You know, the the pastor in a certain sense is representing Jesus, but it, the way that we relate to one another is is a little bit like uh, like fathers and children, spiritual fathers and children. And this language is used throughout the New Testament. And it's not meant to be condescending. And it is certainly not meant to puff up the one who is in the position of father. What it's meant to do is to um, remind us of the relationship that we have with God the Father through Jesus Christ. It's meant to um, to reinforce and to show that this should be a relationship of sacrifice and love, because that's what fathers, that's what mothers and fathers are supposed to do for their children. But here, as we're talking about our Heavenly Father and then spiritual fathers. That's what fathers are supposed to do for their kids. You're supposed to admonish them when they need it. You're supposed to be firm, but you're not supposed to be abusive, right? You're supposed to love them. You're supposed to defend them from things that will that will harm them. And it's supposed to be a relationship one. A pastor is not supposed to be this um, sort of aloof um, and, and holier than thou sort of person with an indelible character He's not supposed to, you know, um, talk over the heads of people, but to love them as children and to help them to grow and mature and to raise up perhaps even some to have right their own families as you is perhaps you right lead your family as the head of your household or perhaps young men as they're considering the office of holy ministry themselves. And so he says this. He says, "You have had countless guides in Christ. You do not have many fathers." And understand, that's that's a relational thing that he's talking about. Because having a guide, having a teacher, is different than having a father and being part of a family. And so he's he's saying that that's the way you're you're treating us, right? You're you're treating it like rabbis. You're not treating it like a like a family or like a relationship into which you have been baptized. And so he says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, right? So sent him as an, as an older brother. And by the way, see the parallel there of right, the father sort of sending the son. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that Paul is God and that Timothy is Jesus, but it means that having them mirror those relationships and those actions is, is a good and right thing. It's supposed to be, in a certain sense, um, uh, a sign or a reminder of what the Lord has already done for them. And so he sent Timothy, Timothy to be in a, in a sense, their, their pastor as Paul was maybe their church planter and apostle, but Timothy would be held to the same standard. And it would be very weird if somebody said, Oh, well, he sent Timothy. So we're going to, we're going to stand behind Timothy and rally around him, but we don't like Paul. How, how could you possibly do that? Timothy is there to represent Paul. Well, Paul is there to represent Jesus, and so is Peter, and so is Apollos, and so are all of your pastors. Right? And so it's very much it's very much that. And so he says, um, to remind you of my ways in Christ, 
as I teach them everywhere and in every church. So it's not just Corinth, right? They have brothers and sisters or cousins, if you will, in other churches and in other places, all being one part of one body. And so he says, some are arrogant. As, by the way, this, sometimes we read these things and he's so nice, but then he kind of ends on this threat. But it's okay. He's moving. There's a lot more Corinth after, Corinthians after this. <laughs> but so then Paul sort of has this uh, really, to me, kind of a terrifying threat to close this out. Um, he says, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. Like, does anybody notice that he sounds a whole lot like Jesus? Right? <laughs> like, some of you, some of you are living as though I'm not coming back, but I am. Mm. So you should live every day, right, as, as if I was coming back. And so this is kind of where the poll text, right? He says, some of you, uh, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, right? Paul, Paul says it's up to the Lord. He says, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Uh, right. Remember, like, Paul, Paul raised somebody from the dead. Right. I mean, the Lord raised them from the dead through Paul. But for all intents and purposes, are people who are looking like, like, you know, Eutychus or however you say his name, like he fell out the window and Paul runs downstairs and right, raises him from the dead. So like when he's talking about, I'm going to figure out not just what words, but what power you have. Yeah. Now, Old Testament prophet time, even if that's not true, that has to be what they're thinking. And that's terrifying. Right. That's that's it's a threat there. But. Even, even if it's not, and perhaps it's even better, because they're going to hear it as a threat, especially with the way that they think in worldly terms. But what does Paul mean when he says the power of God? Hmm. What is that really? And so they're freaking out. They're going to hear that as law. But when Paul shows up, he's probably going to bring to them gospel because it doesn't take the power of God to kill but only God is the one that has the power to bring life again. And that's the miracle that Paul was able to do through the Lord, is not to strike down the boy who fell asleep during the sermon, but to raise him up after he fell out of the window. And so the power of God and the power of, of, of the gospel is to raise to life. And certainly the law of God kills, and that the power of the law is, is that, but but the power of God and the thing that shows him to be great, to be unlike any other God, is that he is merciful and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He desires not the death of the wicked, but that he raises to life. He is the only one that sacrifices his only son, sacrifices himself, and that promises to save sinners, even when they are enemies of him. And so as Paul is saying this, and it sounds like a threat, and it's probably honestly heard as a threat, there might be some undertones there. I think when Paul shows up, that he might show the, 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 the grace of God to those who have caused divisions and restore them. That's really the power that, that he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, so I think, kingdom, yeah. well, I was just going to say with that word power, I, I think we, we, in the context of this epistle, we should connect it back into chapter one, where he's talked about the Christ crucified. That's the power of God. It looks like folly and weakness, but that's the actual power of God is in Christ crucified. So I think that's, as you said, are they going to hear this as a threat? Potentially so, probably so for those arrogant people. 
But what Paul really wants them to to get to is the power of God that is in Christ crucified for the salvation of sinners, as you so well said. Mm-hmm. And it's and the thing that makes this really great is that the way that they hear it is is going is going to be entirely dependent on where their heart is, because if they continue to cling to worldly mm-hmm. ways of evaluating and judging those apostles who come to them, then they're only going to understand power through a fallen and worldly way. They will not be able to hear the gospel because they're rejecting it in the way that they are thinking about and evaluating these apostles. But if they hear the admonishment and through the Holy Spirit repent and desire the gospel, then that's what they're going to hear because they've been heeding Paul's words the whole time. And he's already told them before he ever got here, like you said, what the power of God is through Jesus Christ. And made that very clear distinction between the way that the world sees power, the way that the world sees honor, the way the world sees wisdom, and how those things are shown to us in God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, by the way, um, he ends that way by, by basically kind of telling him that. You know, the Lord, he says, um, judge not for the measure that you use is the one by which you shall be measured. Now, he's not saying that you shouldn't judge anybody ever, but he's saying that the, the way that you make those those judgments, either about people's actions or words, is going to be the measure by which you're used. And Paul kind of says that here too. He says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. Now, he's he's saying it's not about empty words, Right? It's about the power of the gospel that comes. And then he gives them essentially sort of the choice. But, you know, we freak out whenever anybody's presented with a, with a choice, but it's not really, it's not like a choice of, you know, choose Jesus or something. They're already here. And the only choice that they have is to choose something different now. Right? Reminiscent of Joshua, choose for yourselves this day which gods you will serve, but for me and my household will serve the Lord. Look, you're already the Lord's. He's already led you out of Egypt. The only choice you have at this point is to choose a different God, and that would be very bad. So in this same sort of way, Paul has already presented to them the mysteries of the gospel and the power of God and the wisdom of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, this is already yours. It's already what you've received. He says, so what is it that you wish What is it that you want that you don't already have? He says, do you want the rod or do you want the spirit of gentleness? Hmm. And then he leaves it up to them, you know, sort of in a, in a similar way to, you know, how C.S. Lewis might describe those who, those who are saved are the ones that say unto the Lord, thy will be done. And those who are not are the ones unto whom the Lord says, Thy will be done. And so Paul is basically, you know, offering that up to them again. You have already been given the gospel. You've been told of the grace and mercy, the mysteries of the Lord's love in Jesus Christ. Is this what you want? That's what you've been looking for, right? Because if it's not, then you can have what you want. But but this is what the Lord has given you. And this is what you should boast in. And this is what both both Peter and Apollos and even I have brought to you. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, not ourselves, not our eloquence, not our wisdom, not our looks, but the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
And if that's what you wish, then you have it, whether through Peter or Apollos or me. That's what you have it because it's always through Jesus, through the gospel and the means of grace which he gives to you, you have it. And if you want something else, it's not the gospel, it's the rod. So, so rest and take comfort and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and leave those other things behind for they're not good for you. And he says this the way that a loving father might speak to his children because that's what we are, children of God through Jesus Christ. Hmm. Pastor Linnell, got about two minutes here. Just thinking about this text, as Paul preached it to the Corinthians, how should we hear this as, as Christians today living within the context of congregations and pastors together? You know, it's we, we, are, we are all still sinners. And I don't think it's wrong to, you know, like somebody who speaks well, to like music that's done well in the church, or, you know, to, to like those things that are beautiful. That's okay. That's great. But something that is beautiful and empty is not worth anything. But something that is full of grace and mercy, something that is full of faithfulness and love, that's worth so much more. Yeah. So long as, so long as she's not listening, uh, you know. I got to tell you, uh, Grandma doesn't look the way she did in her twenties. But you know what, man, the the love and comfort that you get from Grandma is worth so much more. And it doesn't matter what Grandma looks like, because that's that's not that's not what you want. And so in the same way, when the Lord sends to us those spiritual fathers, when the Lord sends to us his grace, oh, by golly, maybe that, maybe that wafer isn't as, you know, as tasty as it could be. But the Lord is good. The grace and forgiveness that comes through it is what I'm there for. And I rejoice in what the Lord gives in with and under the bread and the wine in with and under with the water and the word, I rejoice in those things so much more than I do what the wine tastes like or what the bread tastes like. Because what the Lord brings is not something that we can see with our eyes, but something that we receive through faith. And it leads to something that's so much more beautiful than anything wine or bread or fancy words could ever give. It leads to a relationship with God where we worry not about our sins and fears, but we are forgiven in Christ Jesus. And it leads to an eternal life when Christ indeed returns and raises us from the dead and his earthly concerns are no more. But we are with him and his kingdom forever, serving him in everlasting innocence, righteousness, and blessedness. And just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity, this is most certainly true. Pastor Sean Linnell is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Stewards of the mystery, servants of Christ. This is whom God has given us in his church to proclaim his word, the word of Christ crucified for us. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians chapter 4, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>